We have a mission in our church to make more and better disciples. What we've already confessed is that we're better at making better. We need to get more better at making more. <laughs> Part of that is just the kind of church that we are. Think about it. If you were somewhere in South Marion in need of Jesus, would you really wake up on a Sunday morning and say, you know what I think I'm going to do? Go down to the college church. Part of that is the name it scares you, but probably more than that is the location. If you were not really informed in Christian faith, would you really go sit in a room where a lot of people are deeply informed in the Christian faith? It's intimidating. Are you still there? Look, I have a couple degrees. I'm your pastor and you scare me. You guys forgot more than I'll ever know. And so anyone out there who comes, I think, feels immediately that intimidation. So what is needed, perhaps, at least for our church, and I think for the church at large, because the whole economy of churches is shifting, uh, is a different model. How do we make more disciples? What has happened in the last 150 years, at least since the camp meetings in the early 1800s, is that the church was used largely as a gathering place where people could come and find Christ. You invite your friends, they come, the church does community events, they attract people. Somewhere in that process, the gospel is shared. At the end of that, people hear the gospel. It's either preached or it's communicated somewhere from the front, and then people respond to that by coming forward. They pray at an altar, they pray with a counselor, they go back to the room, they sign a card, whatever the case may be. But it's more of an attractional model of sharing Jesus. But as we get into uh, the next 10 to 20 years in the church, I think a lot of that's going to change. I think the current structure is not sustainable. I don't think the cash flow is there. I think that the church is becoming more and more marginalized in society. It's connected with political causes as much as it is anything else. And because of that, it's turning a lot of people off. And so what we'll need is another way of doing this. Fortunately, there is one. <laughs> and that's what I came to talk to you about in a few minutes. Are you with me? In the 1970s, the Mennonite churches got together and they went into Ethiopia and planted a couple of churches. They tried to make as many disciples as they could. They stayed for about 10 years. After they got the number of disciples up to about 5,000, they thought they had done a good job. They got on the plane and all of them came home. They had no idea. A couple years later, in 1982, the communist regime took over Ethiopia and immediately barred any formal gathering in churches of any type. They eliminated pastors. They were either sent into exile, they were put in prison, or they were killed. They forbade any kind of public expression of the Christian faith anywhere in the country of Ethiopia. The regime lasted 10 years. In 1992, when power structures changed and Christians in Ethiopia were allowed once again to come into public, there were more than 50,000. In 10 years, 
the church in Ethiopia had gone from 5,000 to over 50,000 at the same time that it was illegal to have church. How did they do it? It was the discipleship culture. In a discipleship culture, everyone is being discipled by someone. Let me say that differently. Nobody is done being discipled. Everyone finds a mentor who disciples them to the next level. And at the same time, everyone is active in discipling others. It turns out that what happened in the church in Ethiopia is not an anomaly. If you go back and look at church history, this is exactly how the church grew. I'm using Rodney Stark's numbers now from the book, The Triumph of Christianity. He says that a few years after Jesus left the earth in about 40 AD, there were a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. A thousand. Ten years later, there was slightly over 1,400. So not a tremendous amount of growth in 10 years' time. But 50 years later, there were more than 7,500. And 100 years later, there were over 200,000. By the year 250 A.D., there was more than 1.2 million Christians practicing in the Roman Empire. And by the time Constantine was crowned in 306 A.D., there was more than 6 million. Alan Kreider writes in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, that the rapid rise of the early church happened at the same time in history that it was illegal to do most of what we're doing here right now. Couldn't do it. You could not gather in public assemblies. If you did, you didn't tell anyone. Think about that. Not inviting your friends to church. You didn't do it because it was illegal. And so by the third century, most gatherings were putting deacons at the door to keep people out, not to invite them in. If you were not known, if you did not have some certification, they didn't even let you in the service for fear that you might be a spy. And if you were only a follower and you were not baptized, we'll be baptizing people in a few minutes. See why? You only got through the first half of the service. And then they released you. <laughs> there were no larger-than-life personalities. There was no single iconic missionary figure until the 5th century. And yet, in the first 260 years of Christianity... They grew more than 63 converts a day at the same time that it was illegal to do everything we do to get people saved. How did they do it? 
It was a discipleship culture. All of the members, or most of them, were actively engaged in the process of becoming better disciples. And all the while they were doing that, they were interfacing daily in the marketplace people who were not followers of Jesus at all. So you always had someone you were following and some ones who were following you. Now to the smart board. Can I talk with my back to you? Can you see it on, on the screen? If I'm reading this passage in 2 Timothy 2, 2 right, I see four generations of disciples. One, I see Paul. Then I see Timothy. Paul said, those things that you have heard from me. That's one. There's the second one. Are you still with me? I'm, this, I'm not leading you on. This is literally, I think, what the text says. But then what Paul says is, whatever I give to you and trust to faithful people. See him? This is a teaching, not a sermon. There won't be an altar call. Do you see him? Thank you. All six of you. Perfect. <laughs> Paul says, what you have learned from me, teach to others faithful witnesses or people who will in turn be qualified to teach others. I'm doing this just because I like to look like a football coach drawing circles. <laughs> now, oh man, that thing again. There he goes. Okay. Now, there's a couple of things about this I would like to uh, point out that I think turn what we're doing on its head. First of all, what I'd like you to notice is that the direction of this is moving out like this. Do you see it? So that the further you get away from Paul's life, the more influence he has. If I were to write a law of multiplication, I went online to look up the mathematical law of multiplication. I can't even, I don't even know what those words mean. So I wrote my own. And it goes like this. The influence of one life is disproportionate to the number of people it directly affects. Let me say that in slow motion. The influence of one life is disproportionate to the number of people that it directly affects. What I'm saying is, if you, we try to affect more lives, we affect them less. And if we try to affect fewer lives, we will affect them more. When Paul starts, he is not interested in the others. He's not even interested yet in the faithful people. He's interested in the one who is in front of him. 
But because his influence is disproportionate to the number of people he's affecting, his chance of multiplying is much higher. His power and influence will become more powerful and more numerous as he goes forward. Now, I know that doesn't rock your world, but if you think about it, everything in your life right now is exactly opposite proportion. If you're a teacher, they're always putting more students in front of you, not less. They must not realize that you can only affect more students some. You can't affect a few more if we keep filling classrooms. If you're a business person, the first thing you do is try to build the business or scale it so it gets even larger because then you could make even <laughs> more money. If you're a church, the first thing they do is they ask you, how many people? Not realizing that by driving towards many, we are already sacrificing the chance of making better. So we have to make sure Timothy is thoroughly converted before he is released to talk to the faithful people. The second thing I would like to point out is the content. What Paul said to Timothy was, what you have learned or received from me in the presence of many witnesses, pass on to faithful people who will in turn release it to others. The content here is the gospel. What we're making here are people who are more devoted to Jesus Christ. We're not making leaders. We're not disseminating degrees. We're not passing on a skill set so someone can be better at their job. Look, I hope that happens, all of it. But the purpose of our church is to make people with a love and a loyalty for Jesus Christ. If what we're teaching you does not make you love Jesus more, and if it does not make you more loyal to Jesus in face of opposition, then we are teaching you the wrong stuff. We're giving you someone else's curriculum. You still with me? Think of a virus. 
virus is the most powerful form of life on the planet. It is one millionth of an inch. You can't even see it without an electronic microscope. It's a thousand times smaller than a bacterial cell, which is smaller than a human cell. But hold on, because the power of a virus is in its slowness and in its size. It's invisible. It spreads like crazy. A few years ago, the University of Arizona created tracer viruses that they could track and see how quickly it spread. This will scare the life out of you. They put it on a doorknob going into an office, and within four hours, half of the objects in the office had the virus. They put it in a hotel room on a coffee pot handle, and within four hours, four to five other hotel rooms had the tracer virus. The moral of that story is, leave the coffee pot alone. Don't touch the remote control. Bring your own device. When a virus enters the body, it approaches the human cell, and it asks a few questions. They didn't teach me this in biology. They had bigger words. But I think this is right. They said, the first question the virus asks the living cell is, will you let me in? If the cell says no, the virus is flushed out and the game is up. But if the cell says yes, it opens itself and the virus enters inside the human cell called endocytosis. Once it is inside the human cell, it asks the second question, will you reproduce me? Now, by using part of the human cell's own genetics, the virus releases its code into the human cell and the human cell reproduces the very virus that will subvert it. Once there are two viruses inside of the human cell, the virus never asks any more questions. Now, it gives orders. It says, let me out. Watch this. The first thing a virus does inside the cell when it reproduces is it ruptures the wall of the human cell. And the virus, now two of them, is released into the body to start the process all over. If it didn't make you sick, it would be flat-out genius. In my world, 
everything God is part of works pretty much the same way. Notice the genius of a virus is that it does not reproduce itself. It asks the other person to reproduce it. And when the other cell reproduces it, it does it in a way that masquerades as part of the body. Second, the virus never congregates. It never comes together. If it did, you could cut it out. But because it is the nature of that thing to disperse itself, not to gather, its nature is to release. You can't track it. Third, the way that it spreads is through its symptoms. Chickenpox is a virus. You had it? Have you had it? Only three of you have had it? <laughs> By forcing you to itch, it's incentivizing the own spreading of it. The flu is a cough. <coughs> I would say, turn to the person next to you and cough, but don't. <laughs> the symptom of the virus is what releases it. There's a passage in Proverbs 11.30 that goes like this. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, if you read that right, it sounds backwards because most of us think of trees as producing fruit, but what actually he's saying is it is the fruit that produces the tree. It's the symptom of the tree that produces other trees. The power of a person's life that has been totally transformed by the gospel is the fruit that attracts other people to it. Now, one more time, let's go over it again. The direction of the virus is to move from one person outward. It is not to draw people inward and congregate. It is to release itself and to reproduce itself in the lives of other people. It is not to collect people and try to get them. This is, this is why whenever we put up a screen in another church, and we say, come and watch Pastor Steve speak on a screen. All kinds of things might be wrong with that. But one of them is, it is still an attractional event. We're still asking people to gather in one place and hear Paul speak. And then we're going to watch Timothy lead the worship. And we're going to show up and we're going to watch and then we're going to go home. This is not the nature of the first church. Its power was not in its gatherings. Its power was in the way it released. So when Paul starts thinking about evangelism, let me say this in real slow, he is not looking for the number of followers. He's looking for the number of carriers. 
Who is capable of carrying this? And the power of Paul is not in his services, it's in his ideas. It's his ideas. One of his ideas gets into a person's head, it will fundamentally rewire the way that person thinks about the rest of their life. And then when they start living that way, it reproduces. Where am I going with this? Some of you have been asking that now for 20 minutes. We will not win the city of Marion for Christ by holding more interesting church services because the world does not come to church because the services are boring or even irrelevant. Most often they don't come to church because there's nobody in front of them right now that's thoroughly infected with the gospel and talking about it. Second, if you want to become a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to be thoroughly affected by it yourself. There it is. You can't reproduce what you're not. You have to have it really bad if you want to spread it. I'm going to milk it. But we got time. And like viruses, the longer you have it, the less contagious you are. until God lights a fire in your soul. Some of us have been institutionalized by the church. We're no longer contagious. And we need God to do an awakening in our whole heart, and so we are alive again. What we're transmitting is not content, it's life. It is life. This is not a class. This isn't curriculum. It is the life of Jesus worn in me. And it is contagious when other people see it. Third, the purpose then is not simply to invite people to come and hear Pastor Steve or the worship team. The purpose is to take what God is doing in our lives and to bring it out there. The purpose is to talk about it. Let me say it differently. We can't make disciples inside of churches because churches are by nature laboratories. They're, that's not what they're designed for. They're designed to make sure you have a good case of it but they're not designed to spread it. We cannot make disciples 
any place except where people already are, and it's in the world. So the last piece. This morning, what I would like you to do is I would like you to consider whatever your occupation is, changing your preoccupation. I would like you to consider, and I won't ask for it today, but over the next few weeks, would you pray about this? Would you pray about your number one job in whatever occupation you have is to make disciples, period. Now, this will be easy if you work in one of the Christian universities, but you must not confuse imparting curriculum to a person as making disciples. Say it again, Steve. It is to make people more loyal to Jesus Christ. The making of disciples is not about transmitting a skill set. It is about transmitting a life, a passion for Jesus Christ. And you can teach in a university 50 years and not do that. Or you can teach six months and do it like crazy, but you'll have to make Jesus Christ in his life the curriculum. You simply need the job you have to do it. So it doesn't matter whether you run a business or whether you work in the schools or you work in the locker rooms or you lead a boardroom or you work in the home. Whatever your position is, would you consider saying, my number one job is to make more disciples with the people that are already in my reach. In a moment, we're going to go into baptism. And at the end of baptism, Bo is going to come up and tell you how exactly you can do that. So far, we've developed, I think, three different models. Things that we can give you, send you, teach you, and you can take them into any domain and start making disciples right there. Depends on where you work and what your personality is as to which one you like most. But there's three options. Give us six more months and we'll have another half dozen. But right now we have three and we'd like to give them to as many of you as are willing to make that change in your life. My number one call is to make more disciples. I just happen to be a coach. If you will, we want to come and sit down with you and talk about your work in your context. And we'll find a way to personalize this in your setting. This morning as we go into the, the, the great service of baptism, I'm reminded of those early saints who were baptized, they said, they became candidates for death. So hostile was the environment in the early church that to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ was assuming a tremendous risk. While the risk is not that high in America right now, it means everything to us that it meant to them. In a few moments, you'll look to the screen, and I will have changed by then. You watch, and I'll be in that water. And as we take these three people back in the waters of baptism, I hope you'll join us in a spirit of celebration for this new milestone in their life.